The Rod and Staff podcast comes out of the host's passion for Christ and his church. It exists to encourage a deeper engagement with issues that pertain to doctrine and life. Check us out at rodandstaff.org. Welcome to this episode of the Rod and Staff podcast. I'm your host, Jason, along with my co-host, Roger. Uh, and today we have a very special guest with us as well. Dr. Matt Silverman is in the house uh, and we're going to be talking about vaccines. Well, actually, we're going to be talking about vaccines for the coronavirus, for COVID. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, as we like to do, I have a question. This one will be both for Roger and Matt, but we'll start with you, Dr. Silverman. Uh, which do you prefer and Why? Star Wars or the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe? Ooh, Star Wars or Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, do I get to select specifically the original three Star Wars or do I have to have all nine grouped together in leave order it, to? Leave it to Dr. Matt to complicate things. Come <laughs> on, good doctor. I would say if it was just the, uh, there's, there are a lot of great themes, I think in the original three Star Wars, if you have to add in the, the the six that came after, I think Marvel beats it out a little bit. Uh, but it, it's tough to beat the original three classics, I'd say. Okay. Wow, you're showing your age. <laughs> Very good. Roger, what about you? Oh, this has been a good question for me. Because <laughs> <laughs> you haven't seen any of them. <laughs> well, this is the one where I'm like, ah, I don't really care for for Star Wars very much. And people are like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> Stop listening right now. <laughs> so probably Marvel in this case, <laughs> but no good justification for it. So <laughs> with no good justification. Uh, maybe if if you think it's that controversial, Roger, I, I probably shouldn't give an answer because that we <laughs> that way I can I can be the uh, the neutral one here. But I, I would have to go with uh, with Marvel as well. Uh, I, 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 because I would add all of the, the movies, Matt, you were asking, I, I think just the, the whole package comes together and the newer Star Wars, like you said, not so good, not so good. Uh, but uh, Matt, it is great to have you with us. Uh, we're so thankful that you could make the time uh, to come. I know you are a busy man and you're even uh, busy in terms of answering so many people's questions <laughs> about all this COVID stuff. And uh, but we're, we're honored to have you with us um, for uh, at least one, hopefully a couple of episodes uh, to answer some, some questions. But before uh, we get to questions, Matt, could you uh, just give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself, um, kind of what you do, uh, how you got there, and, uh, and then I'll fill in some blanks if you're too modest. <laughs> Well, so uh, yeah, so I teach medical diagnostics at uh, San Francisco State University in the Bay Area. Uh, so I teach specifically the clinical laboratory scientists. These are the folks that are in the lab, in the hospital that are doing all the tests. So whenever your doctor orders blood work, whether it's cholesterol or uh, triglycerides, you know, uh, testing for a heart attack or uh, testing for viral infections, these are the folks that are in the lab in the back that are doing those tests. So we, we are a program that uh, licenses the, the professionals that do all that stuff. Uh, my background specifically is actually in chemical engineering. My, math, my bachelor's, master's, and PhD are all in chemical engineering from UCLA. Uh, Go Bruins. Yeah, yeah. 
so my my uh, PhD was specific specifically focused on cancer diagnostics and cancer imaging, and I started teaching at San Francisco State uh, shortly after. And I handle most I specifically I handle the clinical chemistry side of things, some of the quality control, the lab management, ensuring ensuring the accuracy of your testing, and and contemporary issues in clinical laboratory science. So it's my job to kind of keep the students up to date with the latest developments in the medical field and how to adapt to it. Now, has this been a very busy time then for your program uh, since COVID began? Yeah, it was, it's, it's required a lot of adapting for us. We've got to keep things going because all of our hospitals are partners with us training our students. Mm -hmm. So we have to make sure our students have training spots when hospitals are having to juggle a lot of different uh, patient loads We've got to navigate complex regulations with the city and with the CSUs in general, because they'll come to us and say, because our classes have to meet in person because we're teaching them hands-on lab uh, instruction. Uh, so it, there's a lot of back and forth between us and the uh, county public health departments to explain to them the precautions that we take to ensure that we don't have any infections in our setting because they're shutting down other schools in the meantime. So our program, we have to show that we need an exception to keep running. So it's a lot of explaining medical stuff to people who do not have a medical background, <laughs> uh, which can, <laughs> which can be a challenge sometimes. Well, let me ask this when, when there's a new virus like uh, this one that we're dealing with, does that, um, how does that get down to a program like yours? Does that change the way you train for that particular uh, virus and how to uh, test for it? Or how does that all trickle down to you guys? So it does not add a whole lot to our curriculum because the type of technology that is used to diagnose this, this virus is the same technology that's used to diagnose other viruses. Okay. Uh, we have set types of tests that we handle. Uh, some, some of the tests are specifically testing for like the proteins on the virus. We call those antigen testing. Uh, and we cover that in our program for a wide range of viruses. Uh, then there's antibody testing, which is testing for your body's immune response to that virus. So you can test someone's blood to see if they have antibodies to a particular virus. So we cover that for a wide range of viruses. Um, and then there's also specifically the testing for the viral DNA. We call that PCR testing or molecular testing is, is usually the term that we use in the lab, mm. but that's specifically testing for the viral uh, genome. And we cover that testing too, as well, uh, as well in our program. So none of these tests that we use regarding COVID are new tests. It's just, we add one more virus into the mix of this is, you know, same mechanism for testing, but just one new virus to test for. Okay. So. So it's interesting. Um, you, these are all kind of standard tests and you, you just kind of input the new, what you're looking for, basically. Yeah, exactly. And that, that sounds interesting because in our conversations off the air about the vaccine, it's been somewhat similar. Can you walk us through this question? What are the various COVID vaccines that are out there these days um, and kind of basically how they work? So what's available and how do they work? Sure. The three that are going out right now are the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. And that's more your traditional vaccine. That's got a, it uses a chimp adenovirus as the, as the, as the antagonizing thing for immune system. And then the two others are the RNA vaccines, one from Pfizer and one from Moderna. Um, so to compare them, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is much more of your traditional vaccine where it's a, a virus that is not really capable of 
uh, replicating in a human, um, but it's designed to look like the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So if, if, you, if when your body sees it, it looks like it's the same virus. So when your body learns to fight it, it's actually learning to fight SARS-CoV-2, even though you're not actually infected with SARS-CoV-2. Um, so that's how that one works. These new RNA vaccines are slightly different mechanisms. They're not actual, actually viruses. Instead, it's just one genomic component of the virus, specifically the part of the genome uh, that codes for the protein on the surface that infects our cells. Hmm. Um, and it's encased in a, a, a particle that's able to fuse directly into our cells. So instead of needing to be infected, the RNA just diffuses directly into our muscle cells. The muscle cells take that RNA, they produce the viral protein. That viral protein goes out onto the cell surface. Your immune system sees it, says, hey, that's not supposed to be there. And then the immune system learns how to fight it. Um, it's, uh, this, is a, this is the first example of this type of vaccine being uh, FDA approved in humans. It's not the first one to be tested in humans, but uh, because of the speed at which this pandemic hit, we were, they were able to uh, test the efficacy of it much faster than you would normally test a vaccine for. Um, and the, the advantage of this is you no longer need to actually grow viruses in cell cultures in any type of setting with these RNA viruses. The production of them is much more standardized. It's very plug and play. Uh, just sub in whatever RNA sequence you want and you create a brand new vaccine. Uh, so it's skip, you don't have to revalidate all the safety protocols over and over and over again with these. It's uh, just a plug and play type of process. So back up just one second so that we, we grasp and, and our listeners understand this too. So with regard to the, the, not the AstraZeneca one, but these other two that you said they're mRNA uh, yeah. uh, 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 vaccines. And with those, um, they, they, you said they, this is not the first time they've been tested in humans. Right. This, this is the first time that they've been FDA approved for use in humans. Mm-hmm. So walk us through a little bit, if you can, the history of that, then how long have we been working with these? Uh, how, how, how much testing have these things gone through overall? Sure. So the earliest record I think I know of, of an RNA vaccine being tested, it was first tested in mice back in, I think, 1993. I think that was the first time that it was ever used. Um, I, and since then, there have been other RNA technologies that have been FDA approved for use in humans. Um, I believe the first, uh, so you can do two things with RNA when you're doing this. One is you can create an immune response. You can teach the cell to make a protein, and then the immune system learns to fight that protein. Uh, the other way is you can actually use RNA to temporarily turn off a gene. Um, and that was actually the, the first use of RNA in an FDA uh, approved uh, treatment. And that was, I believe, 1998, um, specifically for a, a virus that um, uh, affects uh, AIDS patients that causes uh, uh, retinal damage. Um, and that was 1998. And I think there was another one that was uh, approved in uh, early 2000s, I think 2003. Uh, this, uh, the earliest, uh, I know for the Moderna vaccines, uh, their earliest, I believe, believe that they tested in humans was the Zika vaccine. And that clinical trial started sometime in, uh, I think summer of uh, 2019, I believe. Um, uh, I think sometime around June, July or something, they were starting to do their uh, 
uh, efficacy trials uh, in in humans. Um, so that uh, so that actually uh, they published preliminary results from that back in April before anyone was even talking about uh, COVID vaccines from Moderna, and that was what kind of sparked the the interest of hey, the Zika trial looked really good. Will it work just as good for SARS-CoV-2? And that motivated a lot of this push to if this is really that good, let's get this out there faster. And it turns out both Moderna and Pfizer came out with a 95% efficacy, which is much, much higher than what they were, what they were hoping for in terms of effectiveness. So it's, it's looking really good from that end. Tell, tell us a little bit about what that means. This, this uh, 95% efficacy, what's that number actually trying to tell us? What is that communicating to us? Sure. So uh, what happens is you've got your uh, vaccinated group and your control group, right? So they, they split them in half. You've got 30,000 people that are being tested, 15,000 get the vaccine and uh, 15,000 get a placebo. And then you wait a couple months until a bunch of people come down with your disease. And then you check to see, all right, was it mostly the vaccinated people that came down with the disease or mostly the unvaccinated people? So 95% efficacy means that say in a, your control group, you had hundred people come down with it. So these are people that you would think are just as, uh, that are just as vulnerable as anyone to the disease. A hundred of them come down with it. And then in your vaccinated group, only 5% of them come down with it uh, or, or five of them come down with it. Mm-hmm. So we say, all right, we were expecting if both groups were treated e- equally, hundred would be in one group and hundred would be in the other. Since there's 101 and only five in the other, we're estimating that 95% of the people who got the vaccine were protected from the disease. Now that's one step, one component, but there's more to it than that. There is, first of all, there's what percentage of your patients are protected from serious disease? Meaning, Mm. you know, most patients don't have a serious problem with COVID. They have a few symptoms that last a few days and then eventually it goes away. Uh, it's a small percentage that have really, really bad cases that produce a major burden on our healthcare system. So how many people does this vaccine keep out of the hospital? Mm. Of the uh, groups that we've tested so far, that seems to be 100%. There is no one that received the vaccine that required any serious amount of care, from what I remember from looking at their data. Um, So it's pretty close to 100% protection from developing a serious disease. It seems to be roughly 95% from developing de- uh, at least a, a identifiable disease, meaning they never, uh, they never, there was never a point where they tested positive. Um, then there's other questions too of, well, what percentage of your population does it prevent them from uh, being temporarily affected long enough to infect someone else, right? Mm. Um, and so th- that's some of the data that we're interested in looking on later down the line. Um, so that, you know, the, uh, uh, immunity is kind of like a spectrum. It's, you know, it goes from complete and total immunity where the virus is just completely incapable of infecting someone where all the way to the end of, well, it can infect them, but uh, it doesn't result in a very serious infection. And that, that, you know, that percentage of who falls into what category is going to be different along that spectrum. Uh, That that's really uh, fascinating, Matt, and really helpful to kind of understand that that's what you guys are looking for when you're running these tests, because I hadn't even thought. To, to think of what, you know, what different things you might look at, for instance, like you mentioned the question of hospitalization or severe disease uh, versus, uh, you know, disease at all. That, that's a fascinating question. The other part of this that I was going to ask you then is um, if, when we're looking at the population in general, and we're talking about these vaccines, 
I didn't ask too many questions about the AstraZeneca and I'll probably come back to that, but what, what's the science behind kind of the percentage of people that are required to be vaccinated before we get to that herd immunity or whatever it is that we're trying to get to? What we, we keep hearing different numbers, uh, but what, what's all that, what's that all about? And can you help us understand that as well? Yeah. Uh, so all the numbers that you're going to hear right now are, are estimations, and they're going to be based on models that have b- built-in assumptions in terms of how contagious this virus is. Um, uh, and we're not, you know, because we can't, you know, entirely 100% confirm how contagious the virus is, we're going to be guessing for a while in terms of the specific percentage of the population. But the, generally, the, it's, it's a math equation. And generally, the concept is, at what point do you no longer have exponential growth? Of the mm-hmm. virus, and that—that's a—you can imagine a a person has a percentage probability of infecting someone that they encounter. For most of the uh, case studies that I've seen that have followed up on contact tracing, for SARS-CoV-2, it seems to be somewhere in the range of fifteen percent to thirty percent probability that if you're around someone you with the disease, you will infect them. Mm-hmm. So then there's a number of how many people does a typical person interact with during the course of the infection, right? Mm-hmm. So say you are contagious for five days, and during those five days, you closely interact with 20 people. Well, for those 20 people, a 15% probability means you're probably going to infect at least three of them. And that's exponential growth. If every one person infected infects three new people, that goes out of control very quickly. Uh, But now say that half of those 20 are immune to the disease. Well, now instead of infecting three other people, you're only going to infect one or two, right? Because it's, you know, a half. So now say that uh, 66% of the population is protected against the disease. Now, instead of infecting three other, you only infect one. Exponential Mm -hmm. growth is completely gone. And so that's where the math comes in. Once you hit that point where exponential growth is gone, then you are starting to fall into the realm of herd immunity. Anything above that, once you get to 70%, 80%, the probability of you infecting someone drops below the expecting one person. So slowly your virus is going to disappear from your population. Okay. So it all depends on how infectious it is. Uh, the, the, the number that need to be vaccinated kind of depends on how infectious the, 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 the virus is. Uh, that, that's very, very helpful too. Um, as you're looking at the numbers, Matt, and you're give, you gave us some numbers here, we keep hearing something like, uh, you know, 70%, maybe 80%. Someone was throwing out, when I say someone, I think it was Dr. Fauci uh, was, was saying not, maybe 90% at some point, you're kind of shaking your head going, uh, is that even is that even in the realm of possibility? But do you have any guess? Do you think uh, 70% is a good number? Or um, I, most, pe- uh, most of the numbers that I've seen have been thrown around 70%, but really it's all speculation and guessing at this point. Um, there is a question that's been popping up a little bit lately because of some new uh, mute- mutation variants that popped up, one in the UK and one in uh, South America, or, or no, excuse me, South Africa. Um, And these don't make the virus deadlier, but there's been some guesses that they make the virus about 50% more contagious. Uh, So take that 15% probability and then increase it to 20, 23% or something like that, right? So you can imagine it's something like that, which then increases the percentage of the population that needs to be 
vaccinated, or at least needs to uh, be immune to it, have, have had the virus and then recovered. Um, it's possible when someone's saying 90%, they might be assuming that these more contagious strains or more conta uh, contagious mutations become more prevalent. And then we have to deal with a more uh, contagious virus. It's also a factor of how much the population is going to resume normal activities, right? Your herd immunity requirement is going to be much higher if we're back to filling up football stadiums, watching football games, than if we're really just staying home most of the time and only going out for, for small gatherings and things like that. So that's a component in there too. It's, there are different, there will be different estimates based on how much we assume normal uh, society activity within the next six months or so. We're assuming completely normal. Sorry, go ahead, Roger. You were going to say. <laughs> I was just thinking about that as you're talking about that herd immunity and returning to normal. Is, is there a balance of how many people are getting vaccinated along with those getting infected? Mm, like, like what question. is the 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 tension that's trying to be held there, or what should be the goal in 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 that? That is a good question. I think part of the problem is people aren't really agreeing on what the goal should be. Mm. Um, you've, you've got kind of two, two extremes. Uh, there's the one end where it's our main goal is just to keep the hospitals from being overrun, mm. meaning you can't have more that it, most hospitals have an excess capacity of maybe like 15% or something that, you know, open beds able to treat patients in case there's a surge of a particular disease. Um, when we are completely ignoring this virus, it is capable of well exceeding that 15%. Like in the, when it gets really bad, there have been cities where 80% of the uh, people in the hospital are there specifically because of COVID infection, which is you know overwhelming for any hospital system. Um, so there's one end of the opinion that it's just, our main goal is to keep the hospitals from being overwhelmed. So just do the minimum that is required for that. Um, then you've got the other extreme, and I'm not really sure why people go this far, but with the idea of we have to prevent anyone from being infected at all, because we don't know who this is deadly in, therefore we can't afford for anyone to be infected, uh, which is a slightly unsustainable end of the spectrum, but there is a push for that end of the spectrum. So those are kind of the, the two sides, those are the two sides of it. Um, and then there's, there's everything in between, um, like for instance, uh, UCSF was just calling uh, earlier this week for opening schools in February. And that's because schools are not a significant source of uh, major outbreaks, at least for the, the you know, elementary school age. Once you get into the middle school age, it starts you know, being a little more questionable on high school, a little more questionable after that. But that's of the, that is more on the camp of our main goal is to keep the hospitals from being overwhelmed because these pediatric cases really don't overwhelm the hospitals and they don't seem to be contributing to major waves or, or exponential growth of the disease. We're safer opening up that than we are, say, opening up an NBA basketball game. Right. Well, well along with Roger's question, Matt, uh, what, what is the level of immunity uh, that someone, uh, at least theoretically, will have if they have already uh, experienced the disease? Yeah. Right now, our immunity data is looking really good. Um, it's, it's hard because we can't project out further than what we have seen, right? right? So we've only, this has only been around for a year. So most of our immunity data only goes out about eight months, 10 months or something like that. 
So of the really good studies that I've seen that have followed long-term immunity in, in confirmed patients, it seems to last pretty well. Most of them, even eight months later, still have detectable levels of anti antibodies that seem to be good enough to prevent, if not completely prevent reinfection, prevent a, a serious reinfection. Um, of the cases of reinfection that I'm familiar with that I've looked at, none of them have been severe disease seri or serious problem. It's just been, so half the, you know, sometimes just a completely asymptomatic. It was just, it was caught with random screening testing. Um, and the other is it's just mild cough and, you know, congestion. And then, then that's it. Um, so as near as we can tell, the antibody levels are for the vast majority of patients are lasting at, at least eight months. And it looks like they will last longer. Um, now, of course, your immune system has more parts than even that. It's not just antibodies your immune system creates. It also creates uh, a killer T cell response, and it also creates uh, memory cells that, re that will remember the disease and will pop up and, and recreate an immune response if it, if it pops up again. Um, antibodies are normally what we traditionally think of for immunity because uh, they physically prevent a virus from infecting a cell, and they're also just easier to test. Um, so uh, the antibodies, as near as we can tell, are lasting at least eight months. If this is anything like the SARS virus that was, you know, 2003, because genetically they're very similar, uh, then probably the memory cells and the other components of our immune system will last at least a decade, if not more. Uh, because even now, like 17 years after that SAR, uh, the, the 2003 SARS outbreak, when we look at patients that recovered from that, they still have evidence of memory cell memory cell immune uh, resistance to the original virus. Um, so the, the prospects for long-term immunity right now are looking really good. How does, that, how does that compare to getting the vaccine? Is it, is it the same concept that now you're, you have this immunity and I guess the levels of that, what, how do we think through that? Yeah. So usually for each disease, you have to, you know, test them specifically. Some diseases, vaccines actually give you better immunity than recovering from the disease itself. Yeah. And others, the actual virus gives you better immunity. And you really don't know. And we, we're not going to know the answer to that question for a couple years, probably, mm. um, uh, just because we just we don't have the data in. From the preliminary results that I was looking at in terms of you give someone a vaccine and you study their immune system afterwards, the immune system response looked pretty similar to an actual viral infection, oh. uh, which means I, at least right now I'm working off the assumption that uh, someone vaccinated is going to have a very similar immunity profile to someone who's actually been infected and recovered. But we're not going to know for certain for another year or so. And with that in mind, would you recommend uh, to someone uh, who has had the disease uh, that they get vaccinated or not in, in, in the short term. Now that we think it's beginning to open up, people are, the vaccines becoming more and more available. Well, sort of is going to become more, more and more available. Uh, what would you say to someone who's had it? Yeah. Um, so the, getting the vaccine won't hurt you. Um, my guess is at least for the first eight months or so, it's not really going to help. Um, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of suggestions right now in the medical community of let's just get some widespread antibody testing going. Let's see how many people already have antibodies. If you've already got the antibodies, let's prioritize for the vaccine the people who do not yet have antibodies, and that way we can conserve the limited number of vaccines that we've got. Um, so hopefully that strategy will be uh, 
uh, uh, utilized going forward. Um, but it, yeah, so I'd say don't try, uh, my suggestion is maybe not try to push yourself to the front of the line if you've already <laughs> had the thing. And especially if you already test positive for the antibodies. Um, like later, once we're no longer supply limited, I'd say anyone who wants to get vaccinated, there's no harm in or harm in doing it. You can get a vaccine after having the disease and your, your body's just fine. So, well, we have a lot of questions. I know we want to ask actually, Roger, go ahead. You yeah, want to jump just, in? Just a quick question on that. When you, when you talk about the antibody testing. Um, so, uh, I, I give blood to the red cross, uh, throughout the year. And one of the things they started doing when they test your blood is they said, we're going to do a test to see, uh, what's in there. I don't know what type of antibody testing they're doing, uh, for COVID. Have you heard of that or, or have any, yeah. any thoughts on that? How, accurate that might be or not accurate? Um, the, yeah, so uh, mo the earlier antibody tests, uh, we, we had some accuracy issues just because the, we were in such a demand for the thing that they were starting to give emergency use, use authorization to a lot of these tests before like the actual data really came out because they just wanted to you know get them out there as quickly and then we'll test them and figure out which ones are the most accurate. Um, the, the, the challenge of, you know, random antibody testing in a population is you always have an accuracy issue. Like, let's say you've got a test that's 99% accurate, right? Mm -hmm. So 1% of the time, it's going to give you a bad result. Um, but now imagine that the prevalence of the disease in the population is only half a percent. That means when you get a positive result, most of them are actually going to be false positives. So if, you know, one, you know, 1% of your results come back a false positive and 0.5% come back a, tr a true positive, that means 66% of your positive results are actually false positives. Um, so that's your challenge always in the beginning of an outbreak like this. Now that a good 10, 15% of the population in some places, I think as high, some cities, I think as high as 20%, honestly, have already had the thing. Now that accuracy, accuracy issue is not that much. So even if you've got, you know, a 1% error rate, 1% compared to 20% is, you know, only a 5% error issue. Um, so I, I think right now for our population, the antibody testing is going to be pretty useful. Um, a lot of the reason why the blood drives, the blood collection is interested in those antibody uh, tests mm -hmm. is the idea of taking the convalescent plasma, meaning you take uh, mm -hmm. the antibody, uh, the plasma from a patient that's recovered from a disease, their plasma contains antibodies. If you give those antibodies to someone else who's early enough in disease progression, it gives the immune system a slight edge that might be enough uh, to give a, get a patient who otherwise would have gone south in terms of their uh, disease progression. And now because you gave their immune system just a little bit of a boost, now they're doing better. Um, it's the same principle behind these monoclonal antibodies uh, that have become you know much more talked about lately. You're giving someone an extra boost of antibodies that's just enough to, to turn the tide between the virus and the immune system. Matt, th this, is, uh, this is gold uh, information for us. Uh, we're, we're used to silver or bronze, I think, uh, Roger. <laughs> but you're, you're, you're giving us good stuff here. And, and there's a lot of questions, especially um, some of the, now, now that we've got kind of the science behind it and, and thought through some of those questions, we, we did want to uh, turn to some, uh, maybe of the concerns that some people might have about the vaccine, some of the spiritual questions, the worldview questions that come with it, but we're going to have to wait or we're not going to wait, but our listeners are going to wait 
for a week because <laughs> what we want to do is, is uh, wrap up this and in our next episode we will go ahead and and uh, talk through some of those questions but uh, if you are a listener and you have uh, additional questions as you've been listening to this uh, kind of learning what is it uh, uh, this fire hose analogy that's always used that's how I feel like I've been sipping from one right now um, it's good information but if you have any questions feel free to send us a note and we'll do our best to get that to Dr. Matt Silverman and uh, ask some more questions uh, but until next time God be with you and I hope you'll join us again if you enjoyed this episode of the Rod and Staff podcast please subscribe and share with others. For more information or to contact the host with questions or comments, please send email correspondence to feedback at rodnstaff.org. That is feedback at rod, the letter N, staff.org.